here with one of my heroes, Dr. Patrick Reardon. Thank you so much. Father, thank you for coming with me and joining me for this journey. My pleasure, entirely. Father, you are pastor of All Saints Orthodox Church in Chicago, which we are in and privileged to be in the sacred space now. How long have you been here? 21 years this summer. 21 years. A couple decades. Amazing. Uh, you were educated as Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. One of the places. Yes. Um, the Pontificate Biblical Institute in Rome. Right. And St. Tuckham's Orthodox Seminary in Southern Canaan, Pennsylvania. Correct. You used to be, or had a tradition of, in a Protestant background. You shifted and became... When my family and I were in the Episcopal Church, part of the Worldwide Anglican Communion. Yes. At exactly the time when it was coming apart at the seams. Uh, it was about to split into all kinds of systems, which now are, are pretty ripe. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just knew we had to get out. Uh, so we did a little search. It narrowed down to two, two options only the Orthodox Church or the Roman Catholic Church. And they were split. Mm-hmm. Humanly speaking, they're hopelessly split. Who's right? Mm-hmm. Who was right in 1054? Hmm. That's the only question I had to settle. Who was right before that split? Who was right in 1054? Uh-huh. Who held on to the tradition and who changed? The Roman Catholic Church changed. It very definitely changed. Mm-hmm. The Bishop of Rome started making all sorts of claims to jurisdiction over the, over the churches of the East. He had never had that before. And also, just recently, with the coronation of Emperor Leo, just recently, he had, he had succumbed to the insertion of a, of a new clause in the Nicene Creed. That was a change. Mm-hmm. You talk about to the filioque clause? Filioque, yes. Yeah, yeah, when, I was, uh, when I was, at the time, I had not thought through those things at all. If anybody asked me, does, does the Holy Spirit proceed from the Father or from the Father and the Son? Because mm-hmm. that was the... I had not thought about that for two seconds. <laughs> Most never, people have not thought. No, no. Yeah. But since the church was split over that very question, uh-huh. it, was, it became imperative to know who got it right. Mm-hmm. Who made the change? No Roman Catholic is, I mean, no well-informed Roman Catholic thinks that the original creed said the spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. No, no, no Roman Catholic scholar or theologian or clergyman would ever say that. They know they changed it. The question is, does the Bishop of Rome have the authority to change it? Okay. Uh, and this is a big question of authority. What it comes down to, doesn't uh, absolutely. it? Absolutely, um, yes. And you, you've written about authority. You've written about the questions in Touchstone magazine. And I really enjoyed your articles in there uh, throughout have. the years. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, and, and the, uh, the books that you have available, there's so many, um, some of the good ones about Jesus. Um, I'm trying the, to remember. the Jesus We Missed. The Jesus We Missed. Terrible yes. title. It's an awful title. I, would, I did not check that title. I would, just... Awful title. We didn't miss him. Mm-hmm. We didn't miss him. That, that's the whole thesis of the book, is that the, the Jesus we believe in is the real one. And that's a question about reality, isn't it? I have, um, I have some questions to ask you uh, regarding culture, uh, regarding uh, materialism and naturalism, regarding evolution, regarding the church, uh, regarding science, regarding marriage. Um, so I want to get into some of these with you. Sure, sure. Let me know if I'm... Going too far, no, or too short, you're fine. And, uh, and the time wise as well. If you start asking me about <laughs> nuclear physics, I might call a halt to it. Okay, okay. Uh, so, as editor of Touchstone magazine for so many years, uh, you've done that to engage culture with the, the Christian ideals and principles that have shaped our subconscious and our universe on a, on a deep spiritual level. Sure. 
why should someone pick up or go into the website of Touchstone Magazine today? What is it about Touchstone that engages us and helps us to cultivate that sense of the divine in our own lives? Every article in Touchstone is very carefully edited. It always, every article, every book review, everything in there must be written, not just from a Christian perspective, but from a traditional Christian perspective. Not just the sort of thing Christians happen to be thinking about right now, but things Christians have always thought about. Mm-hmm. It's a traditional, it's a traditional uh, magazine. We used to say that our editors and writers are drawn from three sources, conservative Protestants, conservative Catholics, and Orthodox. Mm-hmm. More recently, I think we started to need to say conservative Orthodox, because uh, some, orth- some Orthodox are going off the deep end. They're not very Orthodox. No, not a bit. Not wow. a bit. Yeah, we can say the same about the Protestants. Well, that's the whole experiment that Martin Luther warned about when he nailed the thesis about opening the doors of getting away from the ecclesiastical authority of his day. And you open up the door for ecclesiastical authorities in plural to start popping up everywhere. Well, he started the problem in the West. Yeah. The, the, West the Western church and Western culture has not, has not recovered from that terrible experience of the Reformation. Terrible experience of the Reformation. Yes. It was, a, it was a dreadful experience. The separation of the Bible from the church hmm. so that the, the believer, on the basis of his understanding, any individual believer, see, this is, this is part of the fruit of, um, of the printing press. Yes. Where the Bible could be put in everybody's hands. Yes. I have no problem with that. Mm-hmm. But now people like Luther have felt that he could challenge the tradition of the church on the basis of his reading of sacred scripture. So not only is the word of God put in each, each person's hands, people are thinking authority is also put in each person's hands. That's right. That's right. Now, I can, I'm sympathetic. I, I, I know that what the, what the magisterial uh, Protestants, the magisterial reformers, what they were struggling with, I mean, the, the corrupt papacy, mm-hmm. I mean, the selling of indulgences, I mean, the, 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 it was, it was a mess. I know what they were reacting to. But still, there was this, it was also part of an impulse of nationalism. The German states did not, did not want to be sending money down to Rome to build buildings down in Rome and uh, being taxed. The finances had a great deal to do with it. So I'm not, I'm, I'm not defending the papacy. Okay. But one of the things that Luther talked about and wrote about is the problem of the abuse of authority, of taking the word of God and, and using it for their own political ends and monetarial economic ends. Uh, and he's correct on that. So then the Reformation maybe would argue, many would argue, was necessary for a change to be done, even to the point where he risks his own life for that. Well, the institution that he resisted, the institution that he challenged, mm-hmm. made the changes. Mm-hmm. Virtually every single complaint that Luther had against the Renaissance papacy was cleaned up by the Council of Trent. Everyone. Mm-hmm. But once the tangent started, you see if you, What if about I, grace? The, great, the concept of grace, wasn't that the linchpin for him? He said, he said it was. Yeah. He said it was. Um, but his, well, I think, I think that's, I think it's one of the places where he most seriously misunderstood the scriptures. Mm-hmm. I mean, he really, I mean, he was a nominalist. He was a disciple as of William of Ockham, whom he called my Meister Wilhelm. He was a disciple of William of Ockham at Oxford. Uh, he was a nominalist. He believed that, that God justifies us by declaring us just. Mm-hmm. Not by changing us inside. Hmm. I mean, his, his analogy. A legal imputation. It, it, exactly, imputation of righteousness. He, his analogy is the, is the snow falling on the dung heap. Yes. Well, contrast that with, contrast that with the Catholic and, and Orthodox fathers. The analogy is not the snow on the dung heap, it's light permeating the air. 
So when the scriptures declare in Ephesians that it is by grace we have been saved through faith, it is not of ourselves, least anyone should boast. Many would try to please God or appease God like the pagans, constantly bringing sacrifices and doing constant deeds to try to gain the favor of the Almighty so they can twist him to their own devices and their own will. Luther railed against that, saying, let's go back to the scriptures and say, no, it is grace that saves us, not ourselves. So how do you, what's your understanding of that, Father? How do we grasp it in, in today's modern world, the concept of grace, any analogies that help us? I deal with this most recently in my commentary on the Epistle to the Romans. The commentary on? The Epistle to the Romans. Epistle to the Romans. Yes. Published by St. Vladimir Seminary this past September. Okay. Um, I have absolutely no sympathy whatsoever, nor I don't, can, I, can I think of a Christian would have sympathy for any kind of appeasing God, mm. doing things to win God's favor. Yes. Well, I mean, that's, that's, outside, that's outside the realm of divine grace. The Christians may, must be spending all their time, day and night, every waking moment, thanking God for his grace, mm -hmm. living in his grace, depending on his grace. The idea of trying to appease an angry God I don't really think that was ever, I don't think that was ever the, the major problem that Luther made it. I no. believe that was Luther's personal problem. <laughs> he did admit it was at some point. Of course yes. he did, yes, yes. And when he went for confession. I, think, I believe that was Luther's personal problem. Hmm. Um, I don't believe that was a major problem in the church. Isn't it human nature, though, to try to win the favor of those above us by doing things that appease them or please them. Well, it's a, it is a, uh, it's a characteristic of fallen nature. It's a characteristic of simple man. I had some Muslim friends tell me they go to prayers five times a day so they can, quote, win points with God, unquote. And where do they get the idea of going to prayer five times a day? <laughs> they borrowed that from Christians. Mm. The Christians prayed five times a day, half from the beginning. They pay, they pray. And we, and we got that from the Jews. There's this prayer at the time of the morning sacrifice, mm -hmm. the time of the evening sacrifice. Okay. okay. That's matins and vespers. Okay. We carried that on. And those, those were done in the temple. Mm -hmm. okay. And in Christian churches, they were done in Christian churches. We do them in Christian churches to this day. Matins in the morning, evening, evening, the time of the evening, morning and evening sacrifice. We got about that. Then three other times during the day, mid-morning, noon, and mid-afternoon hmm. were, were home times. Hmm. You know? Much of the Quran is gathered from the beliefs and principles of the day. And many of those were Jewish and Christian. Yes. Well, I, 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 I'm, I, have no, I have no problem with praying five times a day. I wish Christians still did it. Mm -hmm. But we don't pray... We do, Not we officially, no. I, I, Some. Oh, I... I, the, the, I, I follow not just the five times a day. Uh -huh. In my own personal life, I follow, the, I follow the monastic, which is seven times a day. When you pray, Father, um, do you have a particular format, yes. structure, template? Yes. yes, yes. Yes, I do. Can you share that with us? Well, if you wish. Oh, this morning. Okay. When I rose. Okay. Uh, after I got my coffee. That helps. Okay, I brought my coffee with me. I sat down quietly in the dark and prayed six psalms. It's the same six psalms every day. I pray them very slowly. These are the ones you committed to memory. They're among the ones that I committed to memory, but they're morning psalms. Um, and they're pretty much the psalms that have been prayed in the mornings since before the church. I mean, the Jews prayed these in the mornings. I mean, Psalm 3 was certainly, was certainly a morning psalm. Psalm 5 is certainly a morning psalm. Psalm 3 is the, is the first psalm of, of matins in both East and West, Western church. Okay. Um, but I pray, I pray those, and I don't, I don't rush through them. I take them very slowly. Between, between the, each of the, at the end of each psalm, I stop. 
and pray in my own words. And uh, they're my own words, but I'm taking them from sacred scripture. Um, Petitions? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all consolation. Say that over a good number of times. I have a have what I call a prayer rope mm -hmm. in my in my, in my pocket here. Do you? I, yes, I I always have a prayer rope. Uh, the one I use this morning is a different one from this. But I, I, I pray several. Prayers. Do you have? Can we see it? Oh, of course, of course. I think if you have trouble finding it again, yeah. Ah. This is ancient, isn't it? I don't know. Not this particular one, but the principle oh, of the, the ropes. Principle. Oh, yes. yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. See, if you notice there, there there's, there's, a bunch of, there's a bunch of knots. Yes. There's ten knots divided by beads. And I very slowly would take a verse of sacred scripture or some prayer built on the text of sacred scripture or a line of the Psalms. And I do that for a while after each psalm. Mm-hmm. Then I turn on the light, and I do six more psalms that I don't know by heart. <laughs> exactly the same way. Tell us one of the psalms, or at least maybe half of a psalm, in the interest of time, um, that perks us to remember the goodness of God and the reality of our temporalness. Well, how about the shortest of them? Go ahead. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Exalt him, all ye peoples, for his mercy endures forever, and the steadfast love of the Lord. For his mercy is confirmed upon us, the steadfast love of the Lord is, is uh, confirmed forever. I don't know the Psalms, by the way, in English. Okay. I, I just I don't pray in English. What do you pray? Uh, always Latin. Latin? But often Hebrew. In Hebrew? Yes. How many languages do you know, Fah? Enough. I get by. <laughs> Enough. I, I, rumor has it you have around 13. Thank you. That Prayers. Let, let, let's, um, let's, let's link this back to the modern age. Why should the modern man, you know, excuse the sophomoric form of this question, but I deal with people on a secular level daily who think prayers are esoteric, to say the least. You're, you're tapping into something that you can't see, touch, hear, or taste. It's beyond you. Why bother? What, what does prayer do to the modern man, and what does it do if, to him if he doesn't pray? Think about this for a minute. In my lifetime, while I was a child, in the 1940s, scientists in Germany and in England speculated about the nature of the, of the, of the earth as a magnet mm. because it's shifting all the time. Okay. That has never, never been decided definitively. We've been working on certain hypothetical explanations, not understanding. There's a different, big difference between understanding and explanation. Okay. But it's a reasonable explanation. Namely, that there's a core, an iron core in the earth, around which is a molten core of iron. Okay. And it shifts. All kinds of electromagnetism, atomic force, and so forth are in there. Yes. Outside of that, you have rock. Outside of that, you have earth. No one has ever seen that inside. Mm -hmm. But anybody <laughs> who questions it is never going to be able to depend on a compass <laughs> with me and try to get someplace without a compass. Right. Okay. Try to get someplace in life without a compass, without faith, without prayer. It's way down deep inside us, much deeper than we can explain, certainly deeper than we can understand. Is that point inside of us that what the what the medievals call the scintilla anime, the mm -hmm. spark of the soul, mm -hmm. where God's finger keeps us and holds us in existence. And that's everybody that's without faith. Now, faith is a natural thing in this sense. It aligns us with that. Faith, according to the epistle of the Hebrews, is impossible 
It is impossible to please God without faith. Mm-hmm. Is it necessary to please God? Well, a distortion of it, of course, would be if you're afraid of God. Mm-hmm. But it's natural to want to please God. Mm-hmm. That's perfectly natural. There's nothing wrong with that. Well, look, we want to please your father. Please parents. Without faith, it is impossible to believe it because he who has come, wants to come to God, come to God, must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them who diligently seek him. But he, yes, that's a powerful verse. He's a rewarder of those who, who I would say, diligently that's, seek him. That is the, that is, that is, that's what, that's what believers are struggling for. I'm talking about Christian believers. That's what they're struggling for in prayer. So if you take a bird's eye view of downtown Chicago during rush hour, you have people to and fro, men, women, children, many of which have no prayer life at all. They're not connecting themselves to this compass that's rooted in the core of the universe mm-hmm. that you use as an example or an analogy. That's very sad because, well, well first of all, they, 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 they go to college. Yes. They get an education. And, one of the, one, and, the, and the entire educational system is set up to persuade people that they don't have a soul. Hmm. As a, as a philosophy teacher, you're fighting an uphill battle. The 10 years before I came here, mm-hmm. I taught philosophy in the community college in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. community college of Allegheny County, uh-huh. CCAC. I was an adjunct teacher, okay. in addition to being a priest. And I had these, these very nice young people just struggling. No one had ever told them to age 18. They had a, and my course was going to be the only one they heard that they had a soul. <laughs> and they certainly weren't going to hear that in, in the psychology department. But the very word is psyche, psychology, psyche, yeah. which means soul. Mm-hmm. They weren't going to hear that. And God help us, but the things they learn in sociology <laughs> or cultural anthropology. Oh, and my job for 10 years was to help the few believers hang on to the faith that their parents had taught them mm-hmm. because the entire educational system was set up to destroy that faith. Yeah, the tide of secularism is strong. I did my doctoral research on evidence for the soul because of the power of that question to me. Um, it still hangs there in the air, the, the, the importance of it. The, the, the existence of the soul was one of the absolute dominant interests of the early Christian apologists. That way, people like Tertullian, for uh-huh. example, or in the early third century, wrote a treatise on the soul. There was all kinds of speculations about the soul. Quite a number of patristic treatises on the soul. And Rene Descartes' whole point is his treatise and meditations was the evidence for the soul as a Christian. He tried to establish that using natural theology. I, uh, I, I know that to be the case. Uh, Descartes is not someone I, I normally quote favorably. No, no, he has his issues. <laughs> I remember standing at his grave, uh-huh. standing at his tomb many years ago. He's buried, by the way, in, in uh, Saint Germain de Prey, mm. in uh, in Paris. Yeah. He's he's buried between Mabillon and Montfaucon. Montfaucon is the one who did the critical edition of the works of Saint John Chrysostom. Mm-hmm. Mabillon did the did the works of Saint Bernard of Clairvaux. And here's this Descartes. Between them, and I, the cart cut between. I had, I had no idea he was there mm. the first time I walked in because I was, I was going to visit the tomb of Mabillon, and I see, I thought, well, you scoundrel, what are you doing here with, with good people? <laughs> well, he said the scoundrel had the started the ball rolling in philosophical history to at least question, um, some of the things of the Enlightenment well, the, period. The, the whole, the whole approach, yeah, of systematic doubt uh-huh. to get to get reducible to something that can't be doubted. Yeah, that's crazy. That you must absolutely yeah. insane. You must doubt everything to believe anything. Yes, this position. Well, almost anything except your very self. And we're, st- and we're, and we're still, and we're still doing that. I'm, yeah, and that, that's eating your own tail. I mean, the snake mm. eats its own tail, and before long, it's chewing on its own brain. <laughs> you know, interesting. Uh, Descartes. Rumor has it that he was buried without a head, being too g- tall for his own grave. Okay. I, I, the circumstances of his, of his death, I don't know. Yeah. I, I know he was, I believe he was in Sweden when he actually died. Yeah, so he was uh, counseling the princess there. Um, let me get to some of the questions I have for you here um, in regarding to distractions. So we live in a world of weapons of mass distraction. 
We have Facebook and Twitter and Google and all these other um, areas that take us away from the importance of the true, the good, and the beautiful. Who's us? Um, don't the take, modern man. It does take me away. <laughs> I wouldn't touch that stuff with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> okay. Well, Touchstone Magazine, they do, they do some good work there using the uh, well, We the put things online, and, yes. I, and, I do, and I do make use of certain things online. Handheld uh, devices, though, uh, uh-huh. no, I wouldn't have anything to do with that. Okay. Yeah, they, they, there is a distraction there. What, is, what are some encouragements that you could give to the modern man who is caught up in the distractions of life that Pascal said pull us away from uh, the grounding in our lives? Distractions are one of the centerpieces of the devil's toolboxes. One of, his, one of the major tools that the devil uses or the devils use to draw us away from, from Christ, from God, from our own soul. There has to be some discipline withdrawal from that. Discipline. Now, this was not nearly the problem when I was a boy. Okay. It is now. But I remember what, in my teens, mm-hmm. I worked in downtown, downtown Louisville, Kentucky. Okay. I had a job working for office equipment company. Mm-hmm. And uh, my job was doing all sorts of things, but I chiefly I, I repaired and cleaned just set your printer, printers. Oh, okay. okay. So I was down there all the time. Uh-huh. I, I was facing exactly the same problem. I was aware of it. I was certainly aware of it by age 16. That's why I would get off the bus. I came in from, came in from south of Louisville, get off the bus, and I would make a special trip over a couple of blocks to go into the cathedral there mm-hmm. and pray mm. every morning mm-hmm. before I go to work. Okay. I was aware, aware of that. You had to come early to do this. Yes. Discipline. And when I was delivering things around, if it got anywhere near the cathedral, I went back in and prayed. This is to reorient the compass within you to the core. I knew to do that as a teenager. I knew to do that as a teenager. What is it that pulled you as a teenager to do that or drew you or cultivated I, you? I was extremely blessed to have believing parents okay. and believing grandparents. Mm. Oh, my goodness, my, my grandmother. Holiest person I ever knew in my life, you know. Uh, but but I, I was taught. I mean, I was taught as a small child. I remember discovering my conscience at about age five or six. Uh, I remember th- throwing myself on my knees about age five or six when my mother told me that I was on the wrong path. Really? <laughs> I remember kneeling down there and giving my life to Jesus. I it's very explicit in my mind. Is that right? At five and six, you still remember that to this day? Oh yeah, it was it was, it was absolutely major. Wow. Okay. When you when you're you're age five or six, uh-huh. and you realize you're on the wrong path, <laughs> and, and you're making a you're making a mess of your life. Uh-huh. <laughs> At five or six, yeah. I and, and I remember being told that every time. I remember my grandfather. God love him. Uh-huh. He says, "Young man, you're going to end up buried in a potter's field." <laughs> Wow. I had no idea what that meant. No. I had, had not read Matthew yet. No. Uh, who Judas was, maybe. Wow. But anyway, uh, I felt extremely blessed. Uh-huh. My parents and grandparents, we were, we, we, it was a religious family. We prayed every night. The whole family prayed every night after supper. Okay. We all gathered and prayed all together. Uh-huh. My wife and I, to raise our kids in exactly the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can count on the fingers of one hand mm-hmm. the number of times our family missed evening prayer. Hmm. It'd be under five times. Hmm. And of course, all 20 years that we had our kids at home. Wow. And we, and we, and we did we did the format of, of um, a shortened version okay. of the Vesper service of the church hmm. with the Psalms uh, and uh, a scripture reading, a, what? Lit- a litany. What would you recommend as a book or as a template for the modern uh, Christian, um, whether Orthodox or Protestant, or even Catholic, um, to use to gear their path of their life in the, modernity, in, the, in the tyranny of the modernity of the day? I would, uh, there's a book by a member of this parish, Joseph Latender. Joseph Latender. Okay. Uh, it should be Latendre, I suppose. Okay. He's, the, uh, he's, he's uh, uh, 
Quebecois, from Montreal, I think. Originally. Okay, French. You wrote a very good book, a very good book for beginners called When You Pray. When You Pray. When You Pray, published okay. by Ancient Faith Press. Ancient Faith Press. When You Pray. It's a, it's a good, it's a good right. starting book. Yes. We'll put that on our show notes. Sure, sure. The Chicago Tribune in July 3, 2015, wrote that you, the Reverend Pat Henry Reardon of All Saints Antiochian Orthodox Church in Chicago, says the government can define and sanction marriage on its own terms, that he'll no longer act as an agent of the government by signing its civil licenses. This is in the wake of the Supreme Court decision to sanctify or to make legalize same-sex marriages. Why? What is so special about marriage and, or the distinction between the civil and the sacred there? That article in the, in the Chicago Tribulation came from an interview right here in this very room over. Is that right? I had put that out a year earlier Okay. when uh, the state of Illinois changed the definition of marriage. Yes. I kid, I'm not, I'm not going to act on behalf of the state of Illinois. Mm-hmm. And I was acting on that all along. Uh, I informed my metropolitan archbishop, I informed my bishop. I got no, no pushback on that at all. Mm-hmm. So when the Supreme Court made the same, essentially the same position, the, the, the trib called me and asked for that interview. Mm-hmm. And I, that's when I got a chance. And of course, that's where it went out and everybody became, became, became famous. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, I believe, I believe that what, this, what, this, what the state is doing, what the country is doing, is unnatural. It's a slap in the face of the creator, but of course they don't believe in the creator. Or they have this idea that the creator doesn't really care about sexual differences. The, they don't believe that human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. The verse that gives us that truth in Genesis, man, God made man in his image according to his likeness. Male and female, he created them. Male and female. A man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife. Male and female. Mm-hmm. That is the only thing. If you're redefining marriage, if it's anything else, that is built into nature. So using the argument from natural law via coyness and I'm giving you an argument from biology. Okay. No one can persuade me mm-hmm. <laughs> that the impulse to use some other orifice than the one designated mm-hmm. for this ultimate union is a natural thing. Mm-hmm. No one can no one can persuade me that the anal cavity mm-hmm. is designed for this kind of activity. That is nuts. I don't care who says it, it is nuts. Okay. Uh, it's not designed for that. Okay. It's not you you weren't created for that kind of activity. So what do you say then to these the modern rising up of um, LGBT movement within Christendom itself? Where they say that God is a God of love and tolerance and peace, and we must be embracing of all lives and lifestyles and sexual preferences. Where are they getting that? The same God, who, the same God who created love and peace, mm-hmm. joy, and all that sort of thing, is the right. same one who gave us the Decalogue. Mm. Same God. They're just picking and choosing what they want. Yes. Um, what, what, what would I say to them? Yes. Unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Hmm. Now, that's different. That's different from the, the pastoral concern I would have, I, and I do have, for anyone who has these, these impulses, these urges. Yes. You've got a problem. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to be hard on people like that. Have you had people who came to you with, these, all, with urges, all if I may? All the time. I've what do you a, say? What would you counsel somebody I've, I've who's struggling a, in that area? I've been a priest for over 50 years. Priest, okay. Uh, I have that all the time. The same people struggling from any, any other problem. Mm-hmm. S- somebody, for example, who's a kleptomaniac. Mm-hmm. He has this deep... Uh, somebody who's a, a chronic uh, chronic mendacity. I mean, he can't help but lie. It makes, you deal with this as a, as a moral problem. You deal with it patiently constantly bringing people back to repentance. 
And I have, I have seen, not always, but sometimes, I've seen the impulse itself change. Now, I'm told by psychology that can't be done mm -hmm. because, because it's hardwired. That's mm -hmm. not hardwired. It is not hardwired. Some of the modern research has come out regarding sexual orientation being connected in a physiological level to us. But as far as the um, people being, quote, born that way, unquote. That's ridiculous. What do you deal with that? that How do you deal with that? That, that is simply ridiculous. I laugh at it uh -huh. and say there's, there, there can be no, absolutely no, no physiological impulse down in the cellular chromosomes of the, of the, of the human being mm -hmm. that, would, that would change an organ, if it were one thing, to another thing. <laughs> they're not designed that way. No. But I think they're talking about more the, um, the lack of testosterone or more of estrogen in some males than females or the opposite, uh, which indicates them to be drawn to the opposite of what they are, such as a man being extremely feminine becomes drawn to the masculine, which is the opposite of him, which just happens to be another man. I think that's the psychology oh, and the I, physiological I behind that, that, and that process. I understand, but that's, that's, that's awfully thin thinking. Yes. I have, I have known some very, very effeminate men mm -hmm. who are fathers of large families. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh -huh. uh, There's a lot to say about this issue, of course. Oh, I, I think I probably, Let's, I, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> There's a lot more. Okay, let's move on. Um, let's talk about icons. Yes. Okay. So in, 18, um, in AD 787, the, seven, uh, the 7th Ecumenical Council uh, dealt with the issue of iconoclasm. 787, you're talking about the 7th Ecumenical Council? Yeah, okay. the 7th. It, it dealt with the issue of icons. Yes. Um, Many Protestants become iconoclasts, destroying anything that's iconic in the fear of worshiping the object rather than the, that which the object points to. I have some good Hindu friends, and they have Vishnu or the, uh, the elephant god and others, where, they, where you're worshiping this, or they even put out food for it. I say, oh, no, we're not worshiping the statue. We're worshiping what it represents, is what they say. Um, the Catholics, of course, go to the statue, Orthodox more toward the icon, um, iconography, which is, there's beauty in this that's um, breathtaking, by the way, in, the, in the, uh, the tradition of icons. My question to you is this one, and I wrote about this, and something I've struggled with for many years, and many people would have brought this up. Icons point us to the icon of God, Christ, who is himself an icon, or a representation of God, or the very image of the, of the immortal God. The line between veneration of the image and worshiping of the image sometimes gets blurred by laity. How, how do you deal does, with it, that objection? It does not get blurred by laity. That is a myth. There's not a, I, I've seen people, I don't know anybody here that worships an icon. I, I, I've never seen it. Define it then. Define what, when someone a certain, worships. A certain around, a what does certain, that mean? The, the people in this parish know that that is not God. Okay. They're not going to worship it. They treat these pictures of Jesus mm -hmm. and his mother mm -hmm. and the saints mm -hmm. with a certain amount of reverence. Mm -hmm. okay. Now, in the morning, before I before I make my bed in the morning, okay, which is long after I've done the prayers, okay, I have a picture of my mother and father, mm -hmm. a photograph of my mother and father, hanging in my room. Okay. Underneath it is another large photograph of my brother who passed away last year. Mm. Okay. Condolences. Okay. I've heard about that, yeah. I come in and kiss both those pictures. Mm. Why? Am I doing them any good? Well, of course not. <laughs> of course not. I'm expressing my love for these people who I believe are still alive. Mm. The whole business of icons is to help put our minds in the presence of the heavenly court because, in fact, when we pray, we really are there. Hmm. Go back to Hebrews 11. Oh, no, Hebrews 12. Okay. We, we, this great cloud of witnesses. We have come to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. We've come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, God. And we've come to the spirits of the just men, made perfect. 
the prophets, the apostles, that select group, about 120 who assembled in the upper room around Mary, the mother of the Savior, when the Holy Spirit came down mm -hmm. at 9 o'clock in the morning mm -hmm. on Pentecost. They're with us. We're with them. According to, you, you cited, you cited, uh, it was either Ephesians or Colossians a little while ago. According to these same texts, we are already lifted to the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Mm. Okay. So the icons are a reminder of and changing of the environment of the mind toward the environment of the heavenly. I don't know why you're interviewing me. me you got the answer there. <laughs> That's right. The way you, way you just said it was perfect. <laughs> I have, okay, the, one of the ancients, uh, one of the great writers of the past, uh, see if I put it here correctly, I think it was Christendom, John Christen, the, the golden tongue, what was his John name? John Chrysostom. Chrysostom, yes. Chrysostomos, yes. He said that these icons should be given due salutation and honorable reverence, not indeed the true worship of faith, which perhaps alone is to the divine nature. However, if you do reject the icon, it's as if you rejected God, is one of his... Um, this is one of his, this is the take from some that, of his that writing. Is, that, that, is, that is one of the texts that's described to him. I've, I've had some, for particular, particularly, I take a, a different, I'm not sure he said that. Okay. But, 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 I, but I believe, but I agree with that, though. Okay. Whether it actually criticism's own words, I agree with it. Because that is the view of the church. Is it possible, then, where one becomes caught up in religiosity? Yes. And is divorced from spirituality? Yes, yes very much. I've seen I've seen a lot of old mechanical religion. Yes. I mean, instead of saying, saying in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, a man it gets easier. Uh, uh -huh. In particular, among some of the ethnic groups, they have to make it real fast. It yes. doesn't even look like a cross. And they're obviously not thinking. It just no. becomes a jerky motion of the hand. Or the reiteration of the Lord's Prayer becomes more of a mantra, which Jesus warned against in the Sermon on the Mount. So do not let your prayers become repetitions like the, like the pagans. Jesus did not say that at all in the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what Jesus says in chapter, in chapter 17 of Luke. Okay. okay. In the Greek text, Jesus says, avoid um, polylogia, hmm. too much wordies, wordishness. He's not, he's, not, he's not telling us not to repeat prayers. He okay. is not saying that. Okay. okay. That that appears to the first time, that translation was the first time, in 1610, 1611, uh -huh. with the King James Bible. And you've got this, this this tradition from the King James Bible that you must not repeat yourself in prayer. Hmm. The Christian church has always repeated itself in prayer. In the litany, the response. Was it Jesus have mercy on me, Jesus have mercy on me? But if you say it like that, oh, yeah. just, you're just using words. Okay. But look at look at that look at that 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 same that same seventeenth chapter of eighteenth uh, chapter of Luke. Okay. The man goes to the temple. He beats his breast mm -hmm. over and over again. Mm -hmm. God be merciful to me, a sinner. Mm -hmm. The imperfect tense of the verb is used there, by the way. Okay. ten. He's doing it over and over and over again. The the chapter begins with the story of the of the widow mm -hmm. going to the judge. Mm -hmm. Imperfect tense of the verb. Repeatedly, she keeps asking him, asking him. Finally, the judge says, well, okay. Mm -hmm. Later on in that same 18th chapter of Luke, you've got the, you've got the story of, of the blind man in Jericho calling out repeatedly, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. There's not, nothing wrong with repetitive prayer as long as it's real, just real prayer. It's not just mechanical words. How does one prevent that from becoming mere mechanical mantras and words that are just repeated before the sake of repetition? It has to do, has to do with personal discipline of one's mind. How do you do it? First of all, I don't, I don't pray fast. Okay. I don't pray fast. and I, 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 I have not reached perfect prayer. I don't what fashion calls pure prayer. Mm. I haven't reached that. And I, I'm hoping I'll get there about... 20 or 30 minutes after I die. <laughs> but, but I... But is God even looking for that? Whether, uh, no, I don't, I, I don't think God is requiring that of me in the sense 
that, he, that he's dissatisfied with my prayer. Mm. Um, this is sort of a psychological trick, I suppose. Okay. But years ago, I learned to incorporate deeply into my thought that God sees me. Okay. He sees me and knows me. In that case, I can let him do the heavy lifting. Hmm. And I'm quite content to do that. So my prayer, my prayer becomes much more, much more passive. Much more passive. I just I concentrate on him seeing it in my soul. Okay. There's a there's an ancient prayer of Saint Leo the Great, the the the, uh, the man who provided the text of the Council of Chalcedon in 451. Um, Almighty God, unto whom our hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. Notice he says this three times. Unto whom all hearts are open, mm -hmm. all desires known, from whom no secrets are hid. Mm -hmm. The prayer itself encourages you to slow down. The prayer of the Psalms encourages you to slow down. Look at the first line of Psalm, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the unwise. Three things. It's tripodic. Sits not in the, yeah. Nor sits in the seat of pestilence. So uh -huh. it's, it's tripodic. Uh -huh. Psalm 3, the very first, the very first psalm of the, uh, of the Christian church every morning. Domine quid multiplicati sunt quid tripolat me. Lord, why are there so many people making life rough on me? Multi insurgent address of me. Many are rising up against me. Multidicon anime me, non as solus ipsi in deus. Many are saying to me, there is no, there's no help for him in God. Three times you said that. Hmm. The prayer itself encourages you to slow down. <laughs> well, uh, and slow. that's why, that's, I. Slow down. I almost always have, almost always have a text when I pray. Okay. And uh, I go to bed at night and lie there and, and recite scriptures. Okay and put myself in imagination at crucial places where I want to be, such as the gate of, of, the, of the village of Nain, mm -hmm. over in the Holy Land, okay. where in, in chapter 7 of, of, uh, of Luke, Jesus raises the, the son of the widows, uh, the, widow, the, the only son of the, of the widow okay. in there, or the beginning of chapter 2 of Mark, sit in the room, watch him take the roof off. I've fallen asleep many times sitting in that room. Thinking about that. Wow. Contemplating it. Taking yourself there. The mind is a remarkable tool to transport us mm -hmm. or not put us there, even emotionally, psychologically. I read the Bible in some ways the same way I read the works of Patrick O'Brien. Hmm? I've read all 20 volumes of Patrick O'Brien's Sea stories. I know about all God, Jack Aubrey. And, Do you? Yes. Well, uh, pl yeah, Plato. I see you're, you're, uh, you're quite read in the philosophers of the day. Yeah. Uh, yes, I suppose. Yeah. But, I, but I've been around a long time. I'm, I'm old I, I wanted to ask you about Plato's cave. I want to come to that. But, okay, let's talk about materialism. Materialism. Um, famous atheist Kyle Nielsen wrote, We have not been able to show that reason requires a moral point of view. Or that all reality, excuse me, or that all really rational persons, unhoodwinked by myth or ideology, need not be individual egoists or classical amoralists. Pure practical reason, even with a good knowledge of the facts, will not take you to morality. What Nielsen is saying here is the project perpetuated and espoused by Immanuel Kant you can arrive at a pure moral system using rationality alone, divorced from the divine. He says an atheist, a well-read, well-researched atheist, that's, that's impossible. You can't. Bertrand Russell, whose famous uh, work on mathematics um, changed the world, but his work on why I'm not a Christian made him famous. He said that humans are nothing more than impure lumps of carbon and water yet late in life, talked about love. What is there about love to impure lumps of carbon and water? <laughs> Amazing how he would reduce everything to the material. Go, any comments on, these, on this any, ideology? Anybody who's satisfied with that, go with it. I'm not going to try to argue anybody. That is so stupid. <laughs> anybody satisfied with it, have at it. That doesn't... That doesn't if, if all we are yes. 
If that, that's it, okay, then please explain Palestrina. Please explain Mozart. Okay. Please explain El Greco. Mm. No. It, it accounts for so little of human experience. Or Handel's Messiah. Um, yeah. Or, yeah. I mean, that doesn't even explain the Gilgamesh epic. <laughs> I mean, this, I see, I see logic, first of all, okay. simply as a tool. Luther said that um, logic was the harlot of the devil. Uh, that's, 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 that's not true. Logic, logic, logic is a gift that God gave us to use as a tool. But it can be misused. It, it can be. But like the example you just gave. Well, that, that's not useful. I can justify my atheism with logic, and I've seen him do it over and over again. No, all he's saying is that, that, that with logic. Or pseudo-logic, if yeah, I may. But see, but uh, logic is a tool, but it's only one of the tools. Okay. I mean, I do not want to violate logic. Okay. No, by no means. But it's only one of the tools. I'm not throwing logic under the bus here. I'm saying the misuse of it or the misapplication of it can be used to justify any human atrocity across the board. I'm, I'm, it has been. It yes. Has been. So, so if you were to succinctly put it down, what is the major problem with modern atheism? Oh, goodness. I, I know if I can reduce it to one major problem. Oh, I would say summary the, of? Well, the, the, the atheist delusion, which is um, uh, David Bentley Hart's book. Yes. The, the, if, you, if you haven't read that book, it's, it's, a, it's a delight to read. The atheist delusion. The atheist, the atheist delusion. Okay. Uh, David Bentley Hart is a, he's a man, he's, he's too brilliant for most people's comfort. Mm. Uh, but, uh, his best book is the, is the Beauty of the Infinite, but his 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 piece on uh, his book on uh, the atheist okay. is is great fun because he's he takes a knife and completely eviscerates mm. all of their he can argue with the best of them, but I would say that that atheism does not adequately does not adequately account for human experience. Human beings have had certain kind of experiences. That they don't—they don't give us understanding. They do at least explain why there has to be something more. When I say I would love you forever, mm -hmm. do we mean that, or is that just a pure illusion? Mm -hmm. okay. When the little baby is crying in its crib, okay, the mother comes in and picks up the little child, and she soothes the child, and she says, "Now everything's okay." Um, evolution. I just interviewed a, an author uh, who argued that m science underestimates God. Oh, excuse me. Uh, scientists underestimate evolution, and creationists underestimate God. Well, he said both of those concepts work together. God uses the natural world to create a world that creates itself. He says the brilliance of creation, the model, and evolution is part of that whole game of life, the biological substratum of the universe, where God creates the universe to create itself. That's where the concept of evolution comes in. And he calls himself a theistic evolutionist, which is a huge grow, growing uh, section of Christendom. Where do you fall on the concept of evolution and, and the reading of Genesis 1 and 2 in this great debate? I don't believe in evolution at all. I believe, I believe the biological evidence for it is borders on zero. The, uh, Expand on that. The, well, the fact that we can't reproduce any things that they, they say happen but naturally. Mm -hmm. For example, the, the, the chromosoma, chromosomatic mm -hmm. structure of the cells is fixed. It's just fixed. Mm -hmm. And there's no, ev no evidence whatsoever that it's ever changed. There seem to be, in, in, for some mammals and some insects and even some whales, uh, horses, where you can change the structure of the, ad or the, the cell with basic mating. 
Um, you can do that with plants, where you can alter the very genetic components, where it could produce a brand new species, a new species of beans, for example, or apples. And then you have the mule, which is the combination of the horse and the, uh, the donkey, right? Um, so there's, there's some examples that are given. Yes, but you, the examples you just gave yeah, what, what, what do you, are, 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 are dead-end answers. Uh-huh. The mule can't reproduce. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. The liger cannot reproduce. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> All those mixtures that we got. They can't reproduce, mm. so it's not going to be a new species. Well, a species that ends up, yeah, end up killing itself. No, that that, but, that there's no. that there is that there is signs uh-huh. of within within the animal and the plant world. Yes, there are signs where that the, the living thing mm-hmm. is adapting to changes in the environment. Oh yeah, of course, which changes itself. Oh, yeah, and that, that 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 skin color for humans. And yeah, that, that that that's that's obvious to me. Density of the the crocodile skin sure. in different environments, and, and you know the fact that here I'm with all this white skin, mm-hmm. and uh, I need I need lots of I need lots of dairy products, mm-hmm. which which man with black skin can't even digest. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I that, that I got all that. Okay, I got all that. But your your big your your big question though, you've got to start with something. How old how old is is the real world. I mean, yes, that's the question of the age of the earth. Now, if that, if that, the, be, the best arguments, I believe, against, against evolution mm-hmm. have been made by mathematicians. Mm. That just on the law of averages, none of these things would ever happen, no matter how long you make the earth. So you, you would hold to the older model what was the name of the bishop who put together the age of the earth? Oh, I don't, I don't know that. Seven thousand to six thousand years yeah, or so. That, that's ridiculous. I mean, that's so ridiculous. you buy the twelve million? Uh, no, no. I, but, but they, they can give me any figure they want. Uh-huh. I don't care. I mean, I, I don't care. It won't make a difference. Okay. Won't make a difference to your faith, or make a difference to? Won't, won't make difference to my argument. I. What is the argument? I've had, I've had students mm-hmm. in my philosophy classes. Okay. Who will tell me? With a straight face. Well, if you put a bunch of monkeys in a room with a typewriter, they'll end up tying out the whole Bible. I said, no, they won't. No, they won't. <laughs> no, they won't. Yeah. And I don't care how long you leave them there. Mm-hmm. But that would be a small thing. Okay. For evolution to be right, they'd have to type out the entire Library of Congress by accident. I don't care how old the earth is. But what you're talking about here is Darwinian evolution. But what about theistic evolution? Where you have a designer behind the process. I mean, if, uh, theologically, I suppose that's, that's possible. Uh-huh. But I don't see any evidence of it. In the biological, even at the, the level where they talk about the gene level? For example, the similarity between human and ape. Uh, the similarities between... Well, how, much, how much of the DNA do we share with an ape? I think the structure says about 90-some percentage. Yeah. Wise. Uh, oh, similarities. There's a, there's overlaps, so overlapping. It's higher than that. Yeah. Well, they're, they're the primates, and then there's it's, the missing it's, link. It's, it's in the, yeah. The, they notice about he's missing. Yeah. Uh, it's only slightly higher uh-huh. for an ape mm-hmm. than it is for a sycamore tree. Hmm. It's something like eighty percent. Same DNA with a sycamore tree. <laughs> See, the quantity doesn't count for anything here. Okay, so even if the theistic evolutionists or Christians are, or the atheists uh, who, who posit a Darwinian form of evolution, even if the evidence for that is actually right, that would not change or alter any form of your understanding of Genesis. Oh, my, no, not, not at all. Not at all. Genesis, for me. Can you legitimately Gen- read Genesis with an evolutionary perspective? I would never think of doing it. But can you do it? Well, I mean, would, why, theologically. Why would I do it? I, I, I want to read Genesis. From the, from the perspective of the man who wrote it. Is it literal? All literature is literal. literal. Clearly, I suppose clearly, the word is better historically clearly, literal. Clearly, clearly, the, book of, the opening chapters of Genesis are poetry. Clearly that's the case. And we've always been read that way. Uh, one of the things I do in the morning after I turn on the light uh-huh. is read the account. Before coffee? Oh, and I'm still doing coffee. Okay. I do coffee all day, okay. uh, all morning. Uh, after I finish 12 Psalms, uh-huh. okay, then I, I read the little snippet of Genesis for that day. Okay. Okay. Uh-huh. Today is Tuesday. Yes. So I read the third 
the third, uh, the day of the Genesis. Uh -huh. I was reading Hebrew. Mm. Okay. I keep coming back to that. I don't ever think in terms of evolution. I just, here, this is a work of literature. It's a work of poetry. And I take it seriously. And God's, it's, it's God's word talking to me. Okay. So I would always say that Genesis, the scriptures, I take every word seriously, but not every word is literal. Some things are poetic, some things are historical, some things are um, made to be literary. Yeah. So the Bible's a combination of different genres. It, it is. In, in, in first read, none of the Bible mm -hmm. is written from the perspective of science. Yeah, it's not a scientific textbook. I mean, those, those for example, those folks who say that, that the six crazy days of creation refer to six different geological ages. The author's not thinking like that. He's not thinking like that at all. Okay. All right, so let's move on then. Let's talk about Trump. Then I'm going to go to sexuality, then uh, evil and suffering, and we'll close with Are that. Are talking about President Trump? How is it possible for somebody like this to be in the White House today? Many Christians struggle with that. Do you have any cultural or any insights regarding um, the shifting of the times of who we actually have running or, or is, is the symbol or the flagship of our country today? I'm much less bothered by Trump than I am by anybody who might replace him. Oh my, when this, uh, the abortion question, the uh, when the, the city of New York, state of New York, recently allows abortion right up to the very moment of the birth, okay? Every single one of the declared candidates who are running agreed with New York. Yeah. Every, every single one of them. You're talking about the Democrat position. I didn't mention a party. Okay. Maybe strategically so? I didn't mention a party. Uh -huh. I happen to be a Democrat. Okay. But I'm, that, that's, that, that's immaterial. Okay. I'm a Democrat in the sense that I, I voted Democrat in the in today's election, for example. <laughs> oh, the recent one, yeah. For, 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 the, uh, for, for my alderman. Okay. Well, party adherence, I mean, that's not a big deal with me. Okay. Okay. And I'm, I'm but I, when I compare Mr. Trump to any of the alternatives, Oh my heavens! Uh, goodness gracious! I mean, Trump's got some things right. Yeah, I see. Economy, economy, foreign policy. I have some wonderful things about religious liberty, freedom of speech on campuses. I thought, wow, there's a lot this president's Absol pouring down. Absolutely. The pro-life movement loves him. The, the, the choices of judges. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, you know, I. Uh, but the vitriol, the arrogance, the um, um, bombastic type of uh, attitude and the treatment of women, et cetera, which the other side has done as well, is a problem for many Christians to swallow. It's a hard pill to swallow. I know. Yeah. I'm not looking for anything perfect in the political order. Okay. I'm quite, I'm quite modest in my hopes. <laughs> Let's start wrapping this up. Um, I'm coming down to meaning of life. Uh, according to the American Philosophical, no, American Psychological Association, uh, just looked at the records today. Suicide is on an increase. Suicide rates in the United States between 2000 and 2016 are up uh, from 10.4 to 13.5% for every 100,000 people. The National Center for Health Statistics Analysis and Data and National Vital Statistics System says the rate is raising, rising significantly from 2006 to 2016 at a rate of 50% increase of suicides among girls and women, up to four to every six persons for every 100,000. The highest rate of suicide for teenagers. Teenagers is rising. It's male of teenagers. Um, I haven't looked at the teenagers for men. I looked at it for women specifically. But in general, the boys, meaning of our lives... Boys, boys are collapsing. Boys are? Yeah, they... Yeah, I think that's the rise of Jordan Peterson and the, the rise oh, are of... Are you, you, you right. familiar with Jordan Peterson? Oh, yeah, yeah, he's Jordan been an inspiration. I love Jordan Peterson. Yeah, yeah. He's been amazing. Well, he's given hope that God is using him in that regard. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But so give us some hope. This leads to the next question. It's connected to the question of evil and suffering in life and the meaning of life. There has to be, there has to be a process of thought. Someone, someone who's, who's living and struggling in darkness, by the way, this is not just outside the church. Mm -hmm. you know, 
I've I've counseled people who are very very devout serious Christians okay. facing death, mm. particularly facing death from disease and long before they should be facing death, which no, it was not a natural thing. Old people they, they, they expected to die, right? Uh, but somebody somebody much younger dying. Okay, being asked the question. They're overwhelmed with a sense of darkness. Yes. Overwhelmed with a sense of darkness. I would give them simply a, a, a course of study, a, a project for them. You would give them a what? A course of study. A course of study. Just to simply quietly sit down and read the Gospels. Just read the Gospels. Okay. The person of Jesus, as he appears in the Gospels, mm-hmm. There's, there, there's just there's limited options. Either he is a total fraud, and those of us who trust and believe in him, though we die, yet we shall live. Yeah, and he who lives and believes in me, John ten. I remember. Shall never perish. I remember my my grandmother. Okay. And that's broken about. Mm-hmm. My uncle John was killed in, a, in an accident. He was, he was a construction worker, and he fell off a, fell from a great height. Mm. Uh, our family was all sheet metal workers. Okay. He fell from a great height. I'm holding my grandmother. I'm, at the time, I was 17. Okay. I was 17. Mm-hmm. Dad put me in charge of her. Mm. He took charge of his father. He okay. put me in charge of grandma. Okay. standing there listening to the gospel okay. I have my arm around her okay. and the scene is, 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 is in the raising of Lazarus John 10 as I said John 10 that's, that's the good shepherd this is the scene this is the scene the raising of Lazarus um, and the, 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 the priest is reading the, the account of, God, of Jesus talking to Martha. Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. She says, I know he will rise on the last day. Mm-hmm. Okay. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Mm. He, who, he who believes in me shall never die. Okay. And I remember my arm around this frail old lady and the tremor that went through her body. Mm. I mean, it's, she had just lost her baby boy. Yeah. Oh, and she believed. That gave her hope. Oh, yeah. That's the anchor. She, she could face. She could face it. That could face anything. Face I, okay. I, I'm a believer because my parents and grandparents were believers, and I'm hoping my children are believers because their mother and I are believers. I don't really have any, but but you got to think it through. Mm-hmm. You've got to think it through. Uh, it okay. can't be just about. He will also yank my chain. Oh, man, he's yanked that chain over and over again in my life. Yeah, but I'm grateful for him. That's oh, glad you know it. <laughs> Without him, I'm nothing. Absolutely, infinitely nothing. Father, thank you for your time. You're welcome, sir. It was a pleasure and an honor.